guest today owns multiple businesses, is a James Beard award-winning author and a salt expert. As well as being an accomplished and successful entrepreneur, he is an adventurer, risk taker, and authentic person looking for the best way to live his life and support the people around him. I had a wonderful time talking with this guy, my friend, Mark Bitterman. Mark, you, you own four stores. You've written six books. Five. Five books. And you own a salt company. That's about right. It's just salt, man. What's the deal? <laughs> yeah, it's just salt. Like, just like anything is just something. Um, salt, the history of our entire civilization and our relationship to food and our relationship to each other and our connection with flavor and our connection with our senses. So that's all it is. I'm just breaking your balls. I like it. Uh, <laughs> It is fascinating to me that you have built this empire off of a spice. And for a lot of people who don't really investigate, they're like, oh, yeah, that's the thing that I buy at the store with the little girl and the umbrella. And then I sprinkle it a little bit on my food. But it's so much bigger than that. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the the umbrella girl is the product of an industrialization process. It's the end result of the industrialization of a food that has been, a, for the last many, many thousands of years, salt has been a handmade, crafted ingredient for food, made in concert with nature in the most intimate ways because it involves weather and seas and um, local economies and so for thousands of years, that's what it was. It was this distinctive local ingredient. And in the mid-1800s, we went industrial in a lot of ways, and salt was one of the most industrialized products because it was part of the chemical revolution. So when the, the, the Morton's umbrella gal is like the supreme feat of the industrialization and standardization of our food supply, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it always has been. It's just that we grew up with it, and so we think it's the way it is. Mm -hmm. Oh, salt is just salt. It's we have we have very very short memories. We have very short understandings of history, and we're like, oh yeah, well that's the way it's always been. And well, no, it's it's a modern industrial invention. Cool. So, do, what do you know much about the history of salt? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I did a little bit of research. Um, I'm sure you know a lot more than I do, but. It was extremely valuable for a very long time, and it was traded along trade routes because for until refrigeration, yeah. it was the way that you preserved food, correct? Yeah, yeah. Preservative. Um, it was also just a simple dietary requirement, so you had to eat it just to – if you have a uh, a food supply that is based on a fixed location. So, you know, when we were foragers and hunters and gatherers, you could – get your meats and you could find your little salt licks and you could always forage for what you needed. But as soon as you settle down in a town and you have a geographically constrained food supply, you need to bring in salt. So it's been part of civilization since the beginning. How did people uh, accumulate it before, before you, you started to sell it? Like, it yeah. I mean, to farm it, you, you basically bring in seawater and, 
evaporate it until it crystallizes. And then you harvest that salt and pack it up and ship it. And another way would be to find a salt deposit, like the very famous uh, salt deposits in Mali, uh, in the in the Sahara Desert, and Sub-Saharan Africa as well. Um, that salt would be picked up basically in large plates. It used to be an evaporated salt lake, and they'd pick up these big slabs and strap them to the side of a camel and ship them off to Timbuktu. And- but before then, people, ha- they just had to acquire the salt in their diet mm-hmm. somehow. And their, yeah. I mean, nobody knew that they needed it, right? Uh, well, you know, if you think about it, uh, the way we know where most salt deposits are is because there are, uh, the, we, the way we know where, how a lot of resources are is by following animals. So animals have always sought out salt deposits. And and whether it's a stream, whether it's a, a, a lake, a, a rock deposit. So we've always, we don't really know to what extent human beings had to go out of their way to forage for salt. It probably depended a lot on their diet at the time. For example, carnivores, if we were living a very, very carnivorous diet, it's not likely that we needed to go out and get a whole lot of salt. Um, if we were in a foraging context and we were relying a lot on grains and berries and nuts, we probably had to find some salt in our diet. So it's been since the dawn of time. So what happens if you don't eat salt? Now, if you don't eat salt at all, you die. It's that simple. Um, salt is, the sodium in salt is a key electrolyte. Um, the chloride, meaning it's what helps your body's wiring work. It helps your muscles activate. It helps your um, uh, all the uh, kind of chemical pathways in your body are reliant. A lot of them are required on sodium. And the chloride is actually, for example, it's used in a million parts of your body, but one of them is in your digestion. So your stomach is hydrochloric acid, which is chlorine-based. So you you have to get it in your in your body. You do eliminate it, so you don't produce it on your own. And a lot of foods don't contain enough salt in and of themselves to sustain you. So you have to eat it. Hmm. But then we've reached a point now where people over-salt everything in terms of over-processed food, Yeah. Yeah, that's a slippery one. I think that processed food gets, uh, there are a bunch of things that happen in processed food, depending on which processed food we're talking about. But yeah, the, you know, there's the addition of fats, there's the addition of sugars, there's the addition of refined carbohydrates, um, uh, like, like flour or sugar, and uh, of course, salt. So that has led to sort of like, I would say, the, the, sales and marketing teams of large food manufacturers saying, well, if we put more salt in it, we'll sell more of it because it'll taste better. Yeah. Um, the flip side is overall, if you look at it from an epidemiological standpoint, from one population to another, whether you're in you know, Japan or in uh, Mongolia or you're in Africa or you're in Europe or the States, our salt consumption is relatively similar, hmm. as in extremely weirdly similar. Hmm. And what that suggests, there have been studies. So we basically, they've done they're, they're what you call a meta study. They've done studies of studies. They've looked at analyses of salt studies, basically analyzed a bunch of different salt studies that were conducted all over the world and found weirdly similar, almost identical uh, salt consumption levels across populations. So what that suggests is, we, to some extent, self-regulate. We just don't want more salt than we need, and we don't want less. Um, 
And the second from that is, you know, yeah, that's how I would leave it at that. Okay. Okay. Uh, sorry, I wasn't trying to de- yeah. derail. <laughs> We're going on to the salt thing. I find that we can go on and talk about salt and health and no, heart and all that stuff. No, what I, what I wanted to get to uh, right away, which you kind of talked about before we started recording, is how you even got into it. And you said that yeah. you were going to college and you dropped out and you went to Europe for seven years. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I was kind of just... I don't know, restless as a restless soul, I think. And uh, I moved to France and wrote there for a while and bought a motorcycle and started traveling all over the place and ended up getting a job restoring a chateau in the southwest of France and learned amazing things about people and nature and culture by living in a rural setting in a place where we still, you know, would all work together, We'd go hunting wild boars in the morning. We would go uh, to the markets and and buy fresh breads and produces. We grew tons of things. We made lots of food on the property. We had sheep and ducks and all that stuff on the property. So I got to kind of live uh, in close proximity to a, a life that is much more connected to our food. How did you go from college? What were you studying in college? Uh, it was the usual studying biopsychology or psychobiology, depending on how you would call it, which and is literature. The, um, it's the study of how brain chemicals affect your your awareness. Okay, and you were like, <laughs> you you were doing that, and you were like, "Fuck it, I'm going to go to France." And then, how did you meet anybody? How did you end up on a chateau yeah. on this farm? The, you know, it's you have to put yourself out there. I mean, I was very lonely when I first moved there. I didn't speak French uh, worth it. I had a little bit, but barely any. But I committed to, I wanted to be a part of the place. And so I, back then, by the way, people didn't speak very much English. It was a little bit easier in a way because you were forced to speak the foreign language a lot more than you are nowadays. So I I committed to going out at night every night and I would go to bars and uh, try to meet people and try to only speak French, which was brutal and awkward. Um but after a while, I got pretty good at communicating. I became very poetic in my communication because I had such bad grammar and such bad vocabulary. I had to become really creative in how I used what little I had. <laughs> People were like, wow, you have such an interesting way of talking. And, um, but eventually, I, you know, I would meet some people and uh, go out. I went to like art gallery openings and things like that. I met this kooky guy one day and um, who lived in one of those like picture book type things, like a gigantic industrial warehouse with all this like weird Louis the 14th furniture scattered around the place and 35, 40 foot ceilings and movie sets and weird exotic parties happening there. So kind of a crazy setup. And this guy one day said, hey, I know a guy with a chateau who needs his shutters fixed. And I was like, that's me. You know, I'm the guy for that um, <laughs> without, without knowing what that was. And I ended up hopping on a motorcycle and going down there and meeting the folks. And I ended up not leaving. It was just extremely cool. I became the foreman of this, this chateau and worked on it for years. Nice. And that's where you got the sweater you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that, my kooky old sweater um, that I was, I took a ferry up late, late, late one night to visit a friend in Oxfordshire and ended up staying with his family off and on for months and spent a lot of time in England after a while. And she one day just presented me with this, they call it a jumper. It's a big baggy sweater 
which has been literally on mothballs for the last 20 years. I took it out and washed it. I was like, I'm going to wear this. And it's, it's just too damn warm, even in Oregon. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you're, you're down there in France yeah. and you're working on the shutters. You're, you're uh, working on the farm and understanding um, how animals eat and survive and taking care of everything. And so did your, did your diet change at that point as you became more ingrained with everything that was happening? Yeah, it's good. It's funny. Um, so I was raised, we were pretty poor growing up. My mom grew a lot of our food. So we had a big, big garden in the backyard. And I don't remember there being anything special about it, but it sounds a little funny. But I remember growing up thinking like nothing was better than a tomato out of my mom's garden. And my mom's cooking was always good country cooking. So we'd have, you know, bean casseroles and just simple foods, but wholesome and good. So I always thought of food as just, I never knew anything but good, natural, well-made food, but not foodie food, not fancy, not no particular slant on it. And when I moved to Europe and lived in the south of France, there was a woman there who named Angèle who was an immigrant under the famines of Mussolini. She moved to France, took care of the kids that were raised on this chateau, and was cooking every day. And we'd have these lunches that were it's like a 20 foot long banquet table with these, this talked about the shutters. The windows were like 10, 12 feet tall. Open up the shutters over the fields, sit at this big table. Swallows would come in and circle over the table and circle back and fly back out the window. And we'd sit at this table and have these fantastic lunches every single day, hmm. seven days a week. Guests would come from out of town or from neighboring farms or neighboring vineyards and have lunch with us. And I was just blown away by the ritual of conversation and the funny little rivalries like, well, your wine is this and we get this wine from the neighbor. It's much better than yours for this food. And the funny little, you know, everybody picking at each other and and the intricate relatedness of, of the people and the food was something that was completely foreign to me. And I was kind of smitten by it. I was smitten by this, like people identified deeply with, oh, this is how we put pepper on this dish before we put it in duck fat and then cook it uh, and and conserve it. Mm-hmm. I was like, why is this a big deal? And they'll have a two-hour conversation about it. And it was just about identity. It's about your connection to food and, and food ways. So I learned all that there and became enamored of that there. Similarly, uh, the relationship of like our interdependency was something new to me. I feel like in... For want of a better term, late stage capitalism, we are all trained to be autonomous. It's me. I take care of me. And if I do that really well, that's fine. And maybe when I feel like it, I can give a little bit, that's that great term, I can give a little bit back. I've got so much, I'm all good. I'll give a little bit back. They don't think that way at all. They're just like, oh, your, your day and my day, we both need each other. We both interrelated in every single possible way. So for example, I had to redo a roof, a giant, huge, ancient, like, I don't know how much these things weigh, but thousands and thousands of pounds, this slate roof and these old wash houses and old farm buildings would leak and crumble. And I had redid one of them. I, didn't even, I just mentioned it at lunch one day, and I must have had 30 people from farms all around showing up every single day at seven o'clock in the morning to work underneath me, dismantling and rebuilding this roof. And I was like, this is just how it, it wasn't even a question. It was just how things were done. Yeah. And that interrelatedness, um, you know, one day I shot a wild boar and went out there, cut this big boar, 
and uh, which were partially like a those things are like a menace when they get big enough. They're like the size of a small freight train. And the end, there must have been 12 people that showed up to butcher that and took it apart. And they shared the whole thing with everybody. People took the bristles from the hide to make hairbrushes. Every single part of it was used and all of it was, and people were specialized, had different things they wanted to, to, to do to help out. So I'd never seen food like that. I'd never understood food to be that part of the relationship to people and the earth and all, and all the traditions. Yeah. I guess it's, it's more focused on community and utilizing what you have around you as it seems like in America, it's more like you just have to eat food real quickly because you have work you have to do. Yeah, food is fuel. Yeah. It's, it's not <laughs> like a, like I've, I've been to Italy a couple of times and that's what blew my mind. The first yeah. time I went was, Everything shuts down at like 115. It's always a weird time. 115 to 315, everything shuts down because everybody goes to lunch. And then all the shops stay open until seven or eight o'clock at night. Because yeah. food is very important. You sit down, you don't throw it in your face. You're having conversations with everybody. You're drinking a little bit of wine. It's more of an event where you're like nourishing your body. Yeah, we were we touched on this earlier. It's like what is the stuff that you that you truly truly have in life the things that you truly that truly fill you up and give you a sense of happiness and maybe purpose in life and connection and it's these moments of sitting down at the table with people is one of the truly wonderful things you can do when you sit down when you've got your kids and maybe there's somebody who's dropped in and there's like a, and there's you know your grandma and your your family's together in these settings that's the most beautiful, meaningful thing. What else are we living here for? Like mm -hmm. stuff. Like I got a, I got a gadget over here. I'm gonna go play with my gadget and get my Bluetooth system set up. Like is that like what your life? Is that the joy of your life? Yeah. No, it's these other things, and that's what meals represent. They're literally a structured way of maximizing the wonderful, you know, feeling of that moment, of of those connections. It's like lunch is a time to do that to make that happen. Yeah, and if you trace it back over human history, I mean, there there must have been so much associated with it because if people went out and they didn't capture some sort of animal product or find berries or whatever, then everybody's starving. So it's like a celebration. When, when you capture something or bring something back, you're like, hey, here's all this stuff. I get to nourish you now. We're mm -hmm. all a community. It's like- It's a beautiful thing. It's yeah. a giving- I agree. And I think that's actually a, touches on a huge point, which is, which also, by the way, relates to something like salt is what galled me about salt. Truly, I think the only reason why I even had the company it ever, ever even came into being is not because I like salt. It's because I was galled by the idea of denigrating a food to making it meaningless and not respectable, not worthwhile. To me, when you have, imagine doing all that hunting and all that bearing and being just like, eh, you leave half an animal to rot. You take some of your berries, you throw it. You have your family starving to death, by the way. Your total lack of respect for the, for the creation that you're, the, for the, the bounty that you have. That to me is like appalling. And so that having the gratitude, having, seeing these things for what they truly are and being grateful for them and sharing them and the joy of sharing them and, the, and then the, the gratitude and connection that brings to all of you together that's like a magnificent thing. 
and going back to the salt thing, what was funny is I just remember thinking like this, like how you open up with this question about like, isn't salt just salt kind of thing? It's like, imagine if we had that relationship with uh, very much in our life, you know, isn't, isn't this person just a talking machine in front of me as opposed to this like beautiful human being that I get to like spend time with? It's mm-hmm. like, you're losing out on a lot. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. It, you, you, uh, when you get in the rhythm of doing certain things and you, you lose the perspective to appreciate what it is and what it does for you and what went into producing it and the labor, uh, the, the, um, the amount of human effort that it takes to bottle a bottle of water mm. or to make an iPhone or to kill a wild boar and prepare it correctly and not burn the shit out of it and salt <laughs> it nicely. Yeah. And just, yeah, there's so many experiences over the course of life. And the reason I love cooking so much, I'm not mm. that great at it, but the reason I love it so much is because I get better at it each time mm. when I bake something in the oven and it's at 425 for 22 minutes. I'm like, ah, I went a little bit too much. So next time 425 for 20 minutes. And then I, I add different flavors in different ways. Like it's about the constant pursuit of getting to where you want it. Mm-hmm. It's funny you bring that up. I was, uh, so I get on kicks with virtually everything I do. I'm just, I love to, I don't know master is probably a strong word, but get to really competent in something. <laughs> And um, uh, for a while, I was making panna cotta for everybody. You come over to my house, you'd be like eating panna cotta. Sorry, you're just gonna have panna cotta because I love, think it's one of these like magical desserts from Italy. But I was making uh, a while ago. I got into ch- to cioppino, which is a seafood stew, which I thought was Italian, but it's actually San Francisco. So I start making cioppino, and it's a fascinating dish, and it's extremely simple. And uh, but what happens, of course, is now I start to have to, I have to invite people over to eat Chipino so I can make more Chipino to get better at making Chipino. Mm-hmm. It's, it is a, it's a wonderful quest. Then I go down to San Francisco and I eat Chipino. I'm like, oh shit, I got so much to learn. <laughs> My Chipino is like, I'm still an amateur. And I think that's, that's a blast. It's a beautiful thing about food. That's the cool thing about making it for yourself though, is sometimes, I mean, I've been to some nice restaurants where I was just blown away by mm-hmm. the, the flavor of everything, but a lot of what I make is the best way that I like to eat it because mm. I I make it exactly for me. You mm. know what I mean? So even when I go back home, hope my mom's not listening to this one, but even when I no. go back home and eat a meal that my mom makes, like I grew up on my mom's cooking, but I like the way I make it better because mm. I've been cooking for 15 years. I do it exactly the way I like it. So sometimes I'll go to a restaurant. I went to El Gaucho and I had a steak supposed to be one of the best steaks in Portland. Yeah. It sucked. Yeah. I make my steak way better than El Gaucho does. And it was a $75 steak. Yeah. But I totally agree with you. Um, one of my, so I used to, like in the Southwest of France, across the mountain from us was a town called Castel Notary. And they made a dish called cassoulet. Cassoulet is basically, oh, it, it, traditionally it's kind of, it sounds boring. It's a bean dish, it's white beans, but it's white beans that are cooked in, with uh, a bunch of lamb, broth and these Toulouse sausages, which are basically like Italian sausages with no fennel, and then comfy duck legs. And it's all put into a big casserole, casuolo, and baked for traditionally for days hmm. at low, low, low temperature. And this thick crust of crunchy, fatty, chewy, browned duck fat and, and protein stuff forms on the top of it. And you crack into that thing and there's these silken white 
white beans and a piece of sausage and a piece of the duck the duck confit. And we lived on a duck farm. Um, and that is a freaking delicious thing to eat. And you'll see that in a restaurant. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> and then I've gone to places where like, this is the best duck confit you can ever find. It's just as good as, as you know, in the south of France and blah, blah, blah. And you're eating, it's like, this is canned beans and some pork rinds or something like that. It has nothing to do with it. So I'm with you. I think that some things, you know, what I'm kind of getting at is some things aren't, restaurants do what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily at all the same thing. I mean, there's just no way to make a cassoulet in a restaurant. You'd be crazy to do it. By the way, what'd you charge? Here's your $500. It took me, you know, three days of work. So here's your $500 bowl of cassoulet. It's not going to work. It's only a food that's, that can be made with love and time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the benefit of uh, living in France like you did or or being in one of those rural countryside areas where there's just some great grandma in the kitchen who's got 60 years of experience doing what I'm doing, changing it just a little bit every single time for all those years. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's not going to open a restaurant. You got to go to her house, hang out with her, talk to her, play with the dog. Like that's a different thing. Yeah. You can't, that woman, Angel, I was telling you about, she made a dish. It was called Pantad. It was a, basically, I think it's a game hen. And, it's just a roast chicken, basically. It's, I mean, it's, there's no way to, it's just, you look at it, it's like, that's just our little roast bird. It was legendary. People came from near and far. People, we had Michelin star chefs up from the Loire Valley and up in Paris would come down to visit the chateau because the guy who owned it was like a, uh, he was kind of connected dude. And they would be like, well, they had her plant, they're just like, Jesus, like, what are we even doing here? So this is just a, you know, a, a simple woman who had lived her whole life you know, perfecting regional cuisine. There's huh. nobody better. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. All right. So going back to France, was there like a defining moment where you, where you uncovered your desire to be involved in the salt industry to, to, yeah to take it and make it your own and turn it into what it is. So I had an epiphany about salt or a couple in France that then 20 years later became my interest in salt. So in other words, I learned something profound for me about at the time that affected my life in many ways, but not in a salty way. Um, and that's like this, I, I've told this story before, but it's a, it's just the time I was first, like kind of really realized that salt was a thing. I was riding on a motorcycle to kind of goofing around up in the North of France. And I stopped in this little, this little roadside tavern type place. And I ordered a little steak free. It's like a lunch special, you know, steak and French fries. And I was eating it. And a couple minutes out into this, I was realized I was literally tripping out. I was like, no idea what the hell, where I was, what I was doing. This is like the most freaking delicious thing I'd ever eaten in my life. And I'm asking the waiter, like, dude, what the hell? You know, and he's just like, boo, you know, he's like this busy guy who's like probably a mechanic, you know, in the backyard and just coming in to help out during lunch. And uh, I was like, insistently, he got to tell me how this thing is made. And he's like, uh, you know, it's a, it's a steak, dude. And it's from a cow, you know? <laughs> 
it's just food. It's food. And I'm like, I don't, I, you're not, I'm not getting to it. Finally, he's like, look, I, I talked to the chef. It's, it's a steak. It's just grilled and salted. And I look more carefully and there are these, these chunky silvery crystals on the surface of the steak. And each one, of course, you know, it's a little in a little well of moisture as it sat there. And I look at that, it's like, that's kind of crazy looking salt now that you say it. It's like kind of coarse and gray. And I took another bite and there's like this ping pong thing happened as like the minerals of the salt are bouncing off and there's the fatty flavor of the meat and the juicy, savory flavor of the meat. And it's all zing-zanging. And every, t- every bite you take, there's a little bit of a different inflection of the salt on the meat. And it's like so dynamic. I was like, Jesus, like how can two ingredients do this? Mm-hmm. And what I also saw at the time was like, these are foods. The salt was a food. This animal was a food. They were, they were things that had intrinsic worth. They were beautiful and they were part of this world. And you're like, you could, there's no only one thing that tastes like that. So I was like tripping out. I was like, t- I, of course they knew the salt maker. So I like jump on my motorcycle, go racing off to the coast. And I meet this guy who makes the salt. And I, he's this handsome guy with sandy blonde hair. And I like to joke around as, as he's talking to you, he's gazing out to see with his pale blue eyes. And he's saying how he makes salt with his hands and the sun and the sea. And I'm like, oh my God, dude, you're just <laughs> killing me. And, um, uh, you know, I was kidding around. He's like, his hand, his hair is like, you know, blowing in the wind, but there's not even any wind. He's just like this guy. <laughs> it's like you know, a, like uh, a photo shoot for uh, Vogue or something. You just, didn't even know I'm that. I'm like, oh my God, this is fantastic. I want to be him. And I'm just in love with what he's doing. And he's talking about these salt works and the salt works are, they were established by these monks in the 12th century. And they were geniuses. They figured out that there are these fortnightlies. Every two weeks there are these super high tides. Water goes up extra high every four, every every two weeks, extra high, extra low. So every fortnightly tide, they would bring in, they would open up this sluice and they'd bring in the seawater at high, at high tide level into this little pond. Then the sea level, you know, the, pond, the sea level goes back down because the tide goes back down. They have very high tides up in the north of France. So now you've got this big, beautiful saltwater pond that's like 10 feet above sea level. Then they use that to use a gravity-fed system, and they feed the water from the pond to one pond to the next to the next to the next. Sun is evaporating that. It's a microclimate where it's sunnier there. And as the salt, the water, the salt water goes from pond to pond, it concentrates into a concentrated brine to the very end, and there's these crystallizing pans, very thin and shallow, where the salt crystals form, and they rake those off and pile it up, and that's how you get the salt. It's in the dirt or it's in... Right on the surface. Actually, it's a, it's dirt. It's a um, silver. It's a um, um, uh, porcelain clay, called argile. It's a silvery blue per- porcelain clay, very very like uh, clean clay. Yeah, because I'm thinking when you rake it, wouldn't all the uh, the stuff underneath get in involved with the salt? There's two salts made from that. It's a technical question, but it's like there's two salts. There's the stuff salt that you can sometimes skim off the surface of that pond without touching the bottom. That's called fleur de sel. You've probably heard of fleur de sel before, flower of salt, salt flower. And then the stuff that you gently rake off the bottom, but you are stirring up that bottom, that's that silvery gray salt. It has little trace amounts of these silicates inside the salt. It's what gives it the color. That salt um, was what was in mistake. And in that is this coarser, more minerally kind of briny flavor. It has a lot of residual moisture. It has this briny, intense flavor. And so I met this guy and I was like, 
that is freaking crazy. And he's like, yeah, no, 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 that's not all. Like the salt farm that's been, oh, and by that way, that salt farm that was established by the monks has been continuous operation since medieval times, since the 12th century. It's never stopped operating. And the entire communal way of life, we talked earlier about the communal way of life that was blowing my mind in the south of France, this entire communal way of life around the farming of the salt and the trade and, of course, the cuisines and everything has been continuously held intact since medieval times. It's the only economic system in the world that is unchanged since medieval times Hmm. and the only food. So that was blowing my mind. And then he's like, yeah, 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 but wait, wait. Um, this farm was actually built on the foundation of a Roman era salt works 500 years before that. And I'm like, oh my God. He's like, oh no, no, but wait. That salt works was built on the foundation of a Celtic salt works that goes back to late Neolithic times. <laughs> and I am just sitting here thinking, I'm all of this history, all of this way of life is connected through this grain of salt that I'm eating at a steak at a truck stop in the north of France. And the the level of meaning that that food had for these people, mm-hmm. its ties and it, and and the beauty of the of the natural operation, it's basically a biodynamic salt farm because they have shrimp and all this waterfowl and tons it's teeming with life. And in later years it's turned out that that economic activity has served as kind of a a bulwark against encroachment by industrial by uh, development. So all those salt farm lands don't get turned into apartment complexes in landfill. And so it's been it's an incredibly beautiful system. So I was like, that's like incredible. And that's just what you get by, for paying attention for being aware of the real nature of what this thing is that you're eating, the true thing. That's why we talk about like the true cost of a food, the true this of it. To really see that is profound. And so that marked me. But I didn't open a salt business until 20 years later. What'd you do for 20 years? I don't even know. I mean, it was like... <laughs> Kept riding that motorcycle? A little bit. A lot, did a lot of that. <laughs> I definitely traveled a lot. Um, I, I, I had a very diverse um, career. I, I, was a, I did wine sales for a while. I ended up... At uh, one point in my life, I was the CEO of a dot-com company. Another point, I was building a database for the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Um, I've done all kinds of kooky stuff. Um, I like... I mean, I like learning and and I like travel. I like art. So I kind of, and I like food. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of found my way through. Well, you also seem like you're very good with people and that's the most important skill in life. It's the one I've worked the hardest at. Yeah. To be honest with you, I feel like there's part of me is the lonesome ranger who just like doesn't, you know, I'm like the gruff character that doesn't bother to talk too much, <laughs> except the not, not talking part. Uh, but I think over time, I've definitely learned that, that, uh, the people part of it's what matters. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, uh, you need people and people are good. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants to be here alone. That would suck. No, that would suck. I think that's like one of the, the best things was that movie. Um, I am legend or something with Will Smith and yeah. he's like, starts dating mannequins in the record shop. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. That's not even a stretch. Like, that's absolutely the way you would go. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. You'd start talking. I mean, just like Tom Hanks on Castaway. Talking, yeah, with talking his, to the beach ball, Wilson. <laughs> yeah, that's like the saddest part yeah. of the movie oh, when his beach no. ball floats away. Uh, okay, so so 20 years goes by. You do a bunch of awesome, amazing stuff. And then what triggers that that memory where you're like, maybe I can do something with this? 
Yeah, uh, it was pretty much by luck. Um, I was at the time I was publishing a newsletter on superconductivity. Sounds pretty strange. Um, I'm probably the only person in the world who knows things about superconductivity and salt simultaneously. Uh, superconductors are just a weird advanced physics material that are used in some things and satellites and magnetic imaging things and nuclear ac particle accelerators. And I wrote a newsletter about this for the industry. Okay. And um, I was doing that. And uh, my ex-wife at the time, she wanted to open up a flower shop. And we had lived above a flower shop in Paris for a couple of years. And it was like, I guess that's cool. I don't know how sound of a business idea that is, but we were never driven by practicality, obviously. <laughs> so um, I offered to build it. And went down to the rebuilding center on Mississippi Avenue, and the only wood they had there was the the cheap kind of wood back then was the reclaimed lumber. All the old growth, dug fir and cedar that's now super popular, that kind of gorgeous reclaimed look that you see everywhere, that was back then the junk wood. So I was like, oh, that's for people on a budget. That's what we'll do. So we built the shop. And um, So you built the cool shop before it was cool. Yeah, just kind of built it just to make it pretty and put flowers in there. And along the way, we're like, well, you know, I'll do that, but I want to, I want to, you know, what do we do about the salt? And she, she's like, oh, let's just get all that salt of yours out of the basement. Because I've been collecting it off and on for years. Um, not with any real clear goal, more just like, ah, we're visiting someplace far out. Let's go down. Oh, we're in Portugal. Let's go check this out. And oh, there's a salt farm. Let's go visit them. So I've been doing that for a long time. Okay. And, we're, you, and were, you were using it and cooking with it? Using it and cooking okay. and just, you know, socking away some to have like a little library of it. So we put all that into little jars. I don't know how how kosher that was back at the time, but I was like, I just want to put it salt. It's safe. So I put it into jars and sold it in the shop. And it was a flat out, I did not expect it at all. I, first off, I was no inter not interested in doing a retail shop. It's nothing to do with my background. And... I always felt it was kind of like somehow I liked the salt. I liked these conversations. So I felt like it was a little bit tacky for me to try to sell it to people. It's like, I kind of want to sell people salt. I just want to share the miracle of this thing with people. But I slowly realized like selling is that that's how people, they're, they're grateful. They want to be involved with it. They like to buy your salt. So I was like, well, that's, I guess this works out okay. And, this, and so the company just kind of built itself from conversations of salt and selling flowers. And was it originally called the meadow? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was the meadow. We had salt and the flowers. And within a few, within about a month or two, we added chocolate, which is another one of my passions, and um, and wine, but with a focus on things like vermouths and amari, bitters, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's just, it just kind of came into being um, more as a way of just kind of manifesting some passions of around food than, than a business concept. And by the way, if you think about it, it's probably the dumbest business idea <laughs> in the world. We specialize in the things that most, a lot of people in the world don't even know they want. Like, do you want some salt? You're like, yeah. If you said that on the side of the street, people would just keep walking. Mm -hmm. And, um, this back then there wasn't a high end chocolate bar thing. There wasn't this bean to bar chocolate. Wasn't a thing that was known in America. Um, it was really uh, an importation of some other discoveries I had made about quality food when I was living in Europe. I was like, oh my God, America doesn't have real chocolate. We've got to do something about that. And of course, you know, the vermouth market has never been what's, wars have not been fought over vermouth. It's <laughs> not going to happen. So um, we specialize in things that people don't really know that they want. And when they do, they don't use very much of it. 
So it was never a genius idea, but it was a reflection of our passions. And frankly, going back to what we were just saying, it was every one of those ingredients is so odd that there every time you a customer comes in the door, it's an invitation for a conversation. Because you're like, how does this even work? What is this stuff? So it's it's a way of connecting with people. Well, yeah, and then it sounds like that led you into writing so you could tell people how to use these salts, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I was I was frustrated by there not being anything written about salt as a food. There was a good book uh, about salt as a kind of an economic engine for for progress, which is interesting as heck, but not one that was written from the perspective of salt as a food. And that was just a. I think that's my one of my favorite things. Someone once said is entrepreneurs don't do things because they love them. They do things because they something's bothering them, and it was it was similar. Like like I said, I like talking about salt because I was infuriated by people not respecting salt, and I wrote a book because I was infuriated that there was no good book on salt. I was like, people have to know, so I I I put a lot of energy into that first book, and um, and I I love writing. So was that salted? Yeah, that yeah. was salted a manifesto. Yeah. Yeah, that book, um, it, yeah, that's the salt block that's cooking. That's salt block. Uh, and that's the bitters, this one right that here. one there, yep. And that was cool. And then that was kind of spectacular because it, uh, it won a James Beard Award, which I wasn't, frankly, I wasn't even surprised because like I wrote a book on salt. It's like the most important subject in food. And so it was kind of like, it wasn't being cocky. It was more just like the subject matter. It's it's, it's a <laughs> big book on this ingredient that everybody eats every single day since the dawn of time. And mm -hmm. there's no book on it. And this is a big one with a lot of words in it, a lot of pictures. I did macro photographs of like 250 different kinds of salts. Like you can see the crystals up close. Yeah. It was like an obsessive work of lunacy. And I was like, Again, like not from an egotistical standpoint, more just like why would a book like this not win a bunch of awards? Yes, yeah. it's, it's the salt book. I just got lucky. Uh -huh. <laughs> no one else thought to write it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you must have crazy, awesome conversations with chefs in different parts of the world because I'm sure this is huge, and they can utilize all the different salts and all the different. Uh, maybe they don't copy your recipes exactly, but yeah. But you know what's funny is. Um, the idea that salt is junk, that is cheap garbage, is uniquely American. It's only American chefs that think that we should use diamond kosher, diamond crystal. They think it's something I can buy in vast quantities for incredibly cheap from a food distributor. Um, it's the opposite of farm to table. It's the opposite of craft. It's the opposite of handmade. It's the opposite of made with love. It's opposite of a lot of our values. Um, that idea of it just being a cheap white industrial product is uniquely American. You go talk to a chef in a foreign country, in anywhere place outside of America, go down to Mexico, go out to, I was just in Ukraine a couple of years ago. You go to, I would spend a lot of time in Japan. Of course, in France, you, Spain, wherever you go, you talk to people and they're like, no, no, I use good salt. Always. I mean, I've never actually met a chef that doesn't say, no, no, I use, I use very good salt. I don't know why you wouldn't. I don't know why you wouldn't. It's also the cheapest ingredient you can use that's a good salt because you don't use that much of it. So it's a it's an odd thing. It's a cultish thing in American chefdom to use this cheap white, entirely processed. It's ninety nine point nine 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 seven percent sodium chloride, which is unlike anything that exists in nature. So what's the process on that? How do you create 
crappy Morton salt. Yeah, you the, the, these kosher salts that are the chefy salts um, are made by taking. Uh, usually, they're used by a. It's called a vacuum va- evaporation process. They take they find a salt deposit, and then they build a factory on top of it. They pump water into that salt deposit. They pump the salt water out. The water goes into the salt deposit, dissolves the salt. Now they have a concentrated salt water. So they've got this kind of like a pipeline of concentrated salt water. You add some some chemicals to that to refine out any of the crap you don't want, meaning natural minerals, potassium, magnesium, calcium, zinc, manganese, all that beautiful stuff that's naturally in Why wouldn't you just leave it in there? Um, For a couple of reasons. One of them is that the real line of work for, well, there's a couple of reasons. The marketing reason is that um, we have been told that there's this, there's this beautiful thing called purity. You want purity. You want the purest salt you can get. Well, the only way you can define a salt that's pure in industrial standards is by being sodium chloride. The more pure the sodium chloride, the better. But that's sort of like saying, I want a chicken to be pure. I want to take this beautiful uh, meat and run it through a centrifuge and distillate, like distill out like some pure strand of protein. There's no nothing beautiful about that at all. It's tor- horrible. So the the idea of pure salt, I think, came about this idea of purity, which historically is because we've had foods that were not pure. You know, we used to have a lot of problem with contaminations in our food. Industrialization was successful in large part because people wanted more standardized, safer food. So that's some of the background. But the other side of it is that these big indu- these big industrial salt makers are selling a lot of their salt to the chemical industry. Hmm. And actually, most of it goes to the chemical industry, the vast majority of it. A very small portion of it goes to, to food supply. And purities, from a chemical standpoint, is very simple. You, mm-hmm. you make money off of the sodium chloride, not out of anything else. So that's where it, it kind of comes from. And uh, they purify it down. Take that brine, put it into these vacuum evaporators, put some natural gas up and hook it up and, and use some fossil fuels to evaporate the salt crystals, uh, the, the salt water, and until it forms into a crystal. Basically, you can form crystals a bunch of different ways, depending on your, your technique. But basically, it's just a vacuum evaporated um, salt brine that's been purified. And so, yeah, you've introduced industrialization and fossil fuels and purification and a bunch of things. And you've also, by the way, then cut out. I talked to you about how beautiful these ancestral, these, these traditional salt works are and how valuable they are economically and environmentally and culinarily. They're such spectacular, special places. But this industrialization just cuts them out. Mm-hmm. So we put all of our resources into big, giant, um, uh, big industrial companies. And so I think that's one of the things chefs don't fully appreciate that when you spend all your money in one area, you're neglecting a whole bunch of other areas. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a big fan of the, the kosher salt thing. Yeah. I just picture you in that truck stop eating that slab of meat with the crystals, the the salt crystals in the same way that anybody could have made it for hundreds or thousands of years. Like that's a time capsule. That's crazy. It's a time capsule. And it's a reality capsule. It's like, this is real salt. This is a real steak in a real place served by some funky guy who, like I said, he probably wasn't even a waiter when he wasn't, when it wasn't rush hour, you know? It's like, this is real life. It's a beautiful thing. Um, it's, you know, it's very different. You go to a, 
you know, a, a fast food restaurant and not one aspect of what we just described exists. Mm-hmm. Everything's on a, 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 the poor animals, first off. <laughs> it's just not even funny, but like, oh my gosh, the poor animals. But the, frankly, the poor employees, the entire supply chain of packaging and the the media around it and 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 the, the, the crappy salt, it's all just such a hijacking of this idea of food and leveraging this idea of food to to create profit and mm-hmm. none of the other things that you get from food, which is these, uh, which is the connection. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always wonder what it'd be like if you could eat a hamburger from McDonald's in 1955 or whatever it was when they started. Yeah. I bet it was different. I mean, it probably wasn't awesome, but. Yeah. I mean, McDonald's was founded on the idea of, of, turning food into a, an industrialized, standardized product. That's why it was successful. Yeah. It was, let's turn people into robots. So they created a system where people become interchangeable. Well, whatever, where we can't turn robots into robots, people into robots physically, we'll make them act like robots. Um, we'll pay them like they're robots. Um, you know, they've, the, these, these kinds of food players have, they don't necessarily, they, they have enough of a stranglehold on the economy that they, they keep the market, the, the, the wages low. Um, so I don't know. I feel like it's, I don't know if there is such a good thing. I mean, I, they keep coming up with new fast food companies and I'm just like the whole concept, um, you know, is, you know, whether you're a Shake Shack or a McDonald's, you're designed, you're designing the system to distance people from the miracle of food and community mm-hmm. and nature. Yeah. Do you know much about the whole Beyond Burger revolution? Well, a bit, yeah. Yeah. What's, what's your take on that situation? I don't know. There's so many ways to look at that, right? Because one way you could look at it, I mean, I'm not a vegetarian strictly, but I, I'm very aware of the environmental and frankly, humane crisis around meat in this world. It's, it's a very real thing. Um, I don't know that a super high-tech blood-yielding food uh, uh, meat substitute is the best answer. To be honest with you, it seems to me like that's a, a strange approach. You know, there's a lot of incredible uh, vegetarian and low meat cuisines and traditions that have developed. First off, it's a system, so they're invi- they're nutritionally good. They're culinarily wonderful and robust. Um, they've got flavor. They've got a lot of. You know, they they connect us to other people. I don't know that the Impossible Burger connects us to jack shit. Yeah. I think it's. It's another way of, you know, Silicon Valley trying to see what more can we do to make our part of the world the most important part of the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't, th- I don't think that the, the world that Silicon Valley is creating is the best one. Yeah, it's weird. I, I think as long as we're humans, and I think that'll shift at some point, but as long as we're humans and we have hearts and lungs and kidneys and we're eating food, we should be eating food. It seems weird to eat something that is like created in a lab. I mean, the same yeah. thing with like saltine crackers or animal, cr- like Cheez-Its. Like that's not real food. We eat it, but mm. it's just, I mean. I know, a- but God, they're so freaking good. <laughs> they Jesus are really Christ, good. Jesus. There's a lot of good stuff that. That's just that- one of those foods I will never even buy a box of that stuff. It comes into my house and it's like, time to binge watch some TV and yeah. eat those cheese. The white cheddar. Yeah. <laughs> God. Yeah, but it's. I think it goes back to what we were talking about, just like having a connection with whatever you're eating. 
we get so disconnected from all of it. I mean, it's, it's like when you go to the grocery store, unless you really think about what is on the meat shelf, it's just like a slab of meat. It's just like a round mm-hmm. chunk of sausage. And unless you're really thinking, that's a pig, mm-hmm. you don't think about it. Kids don't know unless you explain it to them. They're just like, yeah, we're going to have steak tonight. What is steak? Uh, I don't, it's red. I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, when I, I, it, it sounds a little like reductive or something. It's like this whole idea, like if you eat something, you should be prepared to kill it. Um, but part of me feels like that really is a profound thought is I don't, I just don't know what gives us the right to de, to desensitize ourselves to, you know, and animals, they're beautiful. I had to, I had to butcher sheep on this property in the South of France and I've had my share of run-ins with animals over the years. And, you know, they're, they're, you go fishing in the Willamette river and pull a Chinook salmon out of that river and look, and look at this beast, with these, and it, I'm telling you, if you look at the animal, it has fire in its eyes. It's this wild, furious predator, virtually an apex predator, a sub-apex apex predator. It's this wild, living, vital thing that's in nature, working its way up this river. And you want to just pull that out and take its life and consume it, fine, but... Don't think it's not anything. Yeah. It's it's very much something, and it's very beautiful, and it has its own integrity. It has its own right to life, uh, like everything does. You know, we may have the right to eat it, but it also has a right to live. Um, so there's a conflict in there. There's a tension, and we should be aware of that. And I think that the more, I mean, I'm a, I'm a broken record here, but I feel like the, that that being truly connected to our food is really important, and I think it ennobles us to be that way. And I think the opposite is that it diminishes us and it diminishes the world around us. It's a weird situation because we don't understand fully what we're doing, and why this is happening. <laughs> I, I'm sitting here talking to you with all this technology. I'm going to put it on the internet. Yeah. Well, what the shit is that? Yeah. Okay. All this stuff we don't understand. We have no grasp of what it really is. And then someday you die and then you go somewhere. We don't know what that is. Maybe reincarnation's real. You come back as that fish. We don't understand the animal kingdom. And I eat meat. I, I personally don't have a problem with that. I justify mm-hmm. certain things to, mm-hmm. to allow that to happen. Yeah. But there's a part of me that wonders that every generation or every stretch of 100, 200, 300 years, whatever, you look back on it and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. Like oh, yeah. a couple hundred years ago, they used to cut your, they cut your arm to let the blood out because the four humors and one of the ones that uh, could heal you was, was bloodletting. So yeah. That seems insane yeah. now that we know more about uh, scientific um, biology. Uh, I wonder if at some point we're going to be able to talk to animals or we're just going to be like, we're going to figure something out where they're just like, oh my God, you guys ate animals in 2023. Yeah. What were you doing? Yeah. That's insane. I mean, it, it's, it comes back to compassion, right? If it's, we all have some awareness of the integrity of another thing, right? That's why we love puppies. Like, oh my God, they're puppies and they're puppies and they're sacred because they're puppies. But the puppy is like in no way different than a salmon. 
Yeah. It's it's the same damn thing. It's just one of them has a different affect, right? One of them does little droopy eyes, and the other thing looks at you and goes, what the flying fuck am I doing out of the water? And there's 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 that, but we we just have an ability like like you know I mean other animals have no problem killing other animals but human beings we understand things and we see things and we have a we have a relationship to to things that's different and I think that we don't I think we pass we pass on the on the ramifications a lot and I do think that you're right is that um, like for example I've become late in life I became suddenly weirdly lucid on the nature of a cat a house cat my cats for example. I didn't, I realized my whole life I was kind of just kind of seeing them as a fuzzy, cute thing. It's kind of irritating sometimes and kind of sweet other times. And that's just how I thought of them. Incredibly simple. And somewhere along the line, one of my cats was such a total jerk. He was so infuriated by my treatment of him that he finally impressed it upon me by talking nonstop for several years. And one day I realized this freaking guy is just talking to me. Hmm. And so I started relating to him like, oh, so you're saying something to me, so I would communicate back. My point is I'm not like Dr. Doolittle or anything like that. <laughs> but I realized that he has a fully, he has a full internal life, mm-hmm. my cat. He's fully alive inside. He's thinking about all kinds of crazy things. He's feeling all kinds of crazy things. He's all kinds of stuff are going on. And I can dismiss that if I choose to. I have the power to as a human being. I can do whatever I want. I'm a human being mm-hmm. in our society. But it's at my own peril because I'm missing out on something that's that's beautiful. It's like the Native American Indian thing. You know, I'm very struck by this is that they don't have this term it. A cat is not an it. It's a he or a she. Hmm. A tree is not an it. It's a he or a she. Mm-hmm. Things are, are, are things. They're not it's. They're just like us. And I, I, I kind of hold to that, I think. Well, yeah, that's the that's the interesting thing about recognizing that anything is living because so so are plants, so is a tomato. Mm. I mean, anything that's alive that grows possibly has some sort of inherent thought process. We just can't communicate with them. I mean, tomatoes, no matter whether whether or not they're 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 intellectually um, uh, robust, they're they're beautiful things and. Uh, I go back to going back to like the treating meat with respect. I feel like you have to do the same thing with a vegetable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, tomatoes always make me think of the way that one tastes that you grow in your garden mm-hmm. is what, if, if you don't eat them very often and you just always go to the store and, and you get regular tomatoes that are grown in Peru or wherever, you grow one in your backyard and you go to eat it tastes like what a tomato is supposed to taste like it's crazy what real food tastes like no we 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 have a big garden and uh now our tomato sauce it comes out of a jar that we from our tomatoes and and you cook with that and you're just like what the hell is going on with our food it's like so good like i was telling you about my chipino mm-hmm. my seafood stew it has a, a can of a, a jar of our tomato sauce in it and you're like, you can't even pin it down. It's like so much, it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. It's a, but you know, it's not really a surprise. It's the, the stuff that we buy in supermarkets was not grown for or transported or sold for nutrition and flavor. It's, it's just a red thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, also then it comes into play when, when you're trying to decide how you're going to feed millions of people, 
I don't know how you scale a backyard farm up to that position. It would take some rejiggering of how we we live our lives. Um, but one way you would do it is have backyard farms. Everybody's got a farm. Everyone's got a farm, and you got every single person. I mean, there's not. It's not like far fetched. They're like England. Halfway, a lot of England, rural England. Everybody who lives in the countryside in England has a little farm. Portland. Man, I live out in Cully, and you walk down there, and everybody is farming. Mm-hmm. It's just the whole mentality. And I think that's a, it's a it's pretty possible. Um, you know, can we get all of our food from our backyard? Maybe not, but can we get a, a lot of? Really, if if everyone was growing tomatoes, how many fewer airplane flights from Peru would there be with fresh produce? And in, in New Zealand, well, there's some stuff you just shouldn't be able to eat in Portland in December, like a mango. Yeah, why would you? Why would you be able to get a mango in Portland in December? Like that is a benefit of of modern life, but it doesn't taste good. Why should you ever be able to get New Zealand lamb in Portland? You know where how far away New Zealand is? Last time I checked, it's like a long ways away. Yeah. And it's like that you take an animal and you you take this this meat product and you ship it in an airplane. It's always airplane air freight air freight, by the way. Um, and it's insanely impactful on the on if you believe in fossil fuels and you believe in global warming, um, if this if that's a belief. Um and the that why are we even even considering New Zealand lamb as a food? It's, it should just like flat out be illegal. It's like yeah. no, you can't. The, the hidden costs of that are are outrageous, and yet you can't have a, a a sheep in the city of Portland. We're all environmentalists in this town. It's a very green city, but we buy all of our meat from a place that's twelve thousand miles away. That that's one of Portland's all of it, city codes. Of <laughs> you can't have a sheep in city limits. I don't think you can have three chickens. I think it's what you can do. Huh. Um, I don't know. I don't know all the ordinances. I've I've been thinking about a sheep, and I've been told no. <laughs> Not that I would want to butcher my own sheep. No, but I just think I think that there are ways that we could be a lot smarter. I think that's really my point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could we could we could all win too because it would be amazing and beautiful if there were like all these little neat little suburban areas instead of more and more apartment complexes. Like, oh no, we have to have certain areas here for community farms and um, and not community farms and we could have our own sheep growing. And I mean, last time I checked, Oregon has rain and grass. Yeah. Last time I checked. Um, why don't we just use that instead mm-hmm. of flying it from New Zealand? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that you should just eat when you're in a certain spot because that's the benefit of going to mm. the spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard. You know, it's funny. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thorny issue, but I do think it's not so much not feasible as just takes rethinking how we do things. Which, by the way, is not impossible. If you think about it, for example, I'm making this up out of thin air because I'm just going to pick on New Zealand lamb, which, by the way, I buy once in a while. So I'm just <laughs> not like trying Full to be, I'm not, I'm not trying to be like all high and mighty because I'm just like everybody else, but it, these things bug the shit out of me. And, mm-hmm. you know, why wouldn't we say, well, if you're going to, fly lamb in from New Zealand, you're going to pay for it in every single possible sense of the term. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be 
all these kinds of carbon offsets and there's going to be all kinds of stuff. You've got infrastructure, you've got refrigeration, you've got all these things. Plus, I'm not so sure if it's such a freaking great deal here, is it really a good fair shake for the folks that are raising the lambs in New Zealand? So that has to be looked at too. Look at the entire full thing. And then you say, okay, it's like sort of like going to a restaurant now. As you go to a restaurant, you're like, okay, that's going to be $12 for your burrito. But there's a service fee. There's a health insurance credit fee that we have for our employees. There's your tip. There's everything. So you're like, oh, that's like a $822 burrito when I'm done with it. Yeah. Why not just do that with with a piece of New Zealand lamb? Say, well, the price of this lamb is is you know $12 a pound, but with all the fees, it's $35 a pound. Or you can buy this Oregon grown stuff, which is $25 a pound and none of the extra fees. Yeah. That'd be a system. Yeah. You know, if I was the czar of our food system, I would just do crazy things like that all day long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's dictated by the market and anywhere that there's a spot, somebody could undercut someone else to, to steal part of the market. I guess they would. Yeah. I mean, I think what I feel is that there's, there are laws that make things the way they are. Mm-hmm. So for example, the way that things are zoned makes having a farm very expensive. The way that we, and that's just a decision, but zoning, it's just a political decision. Um, the way that we uh, uh, freight v- different products with, if for example, the cost of a bottle of water, you don't pay for the recycling of this bottle. It's it's a funny decision. It's just an arbitrary decision, right? Mm-hmm. We decided that we're going to charge for the cost of this to come to me. We're not going to also, by the way, co- uh, charge for the cost of all of the cleanup that has to happen from the petroleum industry, the war that we may or may not fight for that petroleum industry, all the things that happen to create the petroleum for this plastic. None of that is going to be charged in the plastic. That's all separate. Then we take this thing and we drink it and then we chuck it over our shoulder and we leave that cost to somebody else's deferred. I'm just talking about this. That's just literally a decision. Well, yeah, I saw this infographic the other day. Uh, the biggest polluter of plastics into the ocean is the Philippines. And do you know why? Mm. Because everybody ships their plastic to the Philippines mm. to do whatever they do with it, whether it's recycle or bury it or whatever. They're the biggest polluter because everybody sends it to them. Yeah, well. What yeah, it's, gonna do? it's not a good system. I was in Bali a couple of years ago, and it's it's really grim. Um, there are whole aqueducts. There are whole the sides of the roads. There are whole river valleys that are just piled with plastic. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's one of those inventions that is very important. I mean, you think about... I, I had to take my son to the hospital recently to get his appendix taken out. And you, you see how often they change their gloves <laughs> and then they got to open a syringe and there's a piece of plastic and they do something else. Like there were 40 pieces of plastic in a five minute interaction. And my brain's like, she's done that 20 times today. There's 20 rooms. There's 30 hospitals in Oregon. Like it's enormous. It, it's, it's unmanageable how much is, but it's, allowed us to yeah. live longer and fight disease. So like, I don't know. It's a weird thing. It's a pretty weird thing. I think about like when I make a sandwich for my kids or something and it's like, well, there's a plastic bottle of whatever that is, mayonnaise. There's a thing of mustard. There's a plastic wrap package with a lettuce in it. There's a 
Ziploc thingy inside of a plastic thing with some lunch meat in it and the lunch meat in it blah, blah, goes on and on and on and on. And it's like, by the time I'm done, I'm like, there's like 14 pieces of plastic that mm-hmm. I've been touching to make a sandwich for my kid. <laughs> it's like, does that, does it have to be that way? I don't know. Yeah. No, I don't think so. It's driven by profit. Uh, so when you're, when you're thinking about the way that we do things here in restaurants versus Europe, you mm. think Europe just has it figured out more because like what we talked about earlier, it just food is more of a community thing. Like, is there any hope that America would, would transition to something like that? Or you think we're just stuck in going yeah. to work and, and, and throwing things in our throat? Um, I think that it's not a decision that you, that it's at the restaurant level. So a, a good example is probably my favorite restaurant in the entire world is a little tiny place called Da Remo in a little river, little valley in the northern part of Tuscany. And this is a village restaurant, fluorescent lights, pink wallpaper. And it's just this simple old school place. And I've been eating there for a long time over the years. And when you go in there, it's the husband and wife who own the place, who've lived there for a long time. Their mother was, at least, back in the kitchen. She actually was trained and worked in Paris, but she's a country Italian cook. And everything that goes through that place has this aura of, I made this. I made this stuff for you. And I made it in the most traditional way, that way everyone's made it since the dawn of time, but our own style on that. And by the way, the quality of the in- ingredients is, it's all stuff that's grown. Vast majority of it is grown and made in the region. It's regional cuisine. Regional cuisines use regional ingredients. And the so the quality of the ingredients is incredible. The preparation of the food is patient and fantastic. And then the weird part is it costs maybe a third to a quarter of what a meal costs here in America. Hmm. And I've scratched my head over this all the time for years and years and years and years. I'm like, how does this even work? What's going on? And some things are weird. I can, don't get me talking about the price of potato chips. And I was just in Naples, Italy, and couldn't believe I feel like we're being exploited. You have $6 for a bag of chips here, and it's $1 for a bag of chips there. So something's going on. You know? hmm. um, but what I think it, it comes down to is the, there's two big things. One is that this is a family restaurant in a family location in a, in a in a village. So a lot of what it takes for them to run are sunk costs, right? They've been doing this forever. They probably own the building. I think they do. Um, and they are the workers. So there's there's the the level the concept of profit in this restaurant does not exist. Hmm. It's not a re- restaurant run for profit. It's a restaurant that is their living. It's their livelihood their way of life. So working involves doing what you do and then living where that we have a very, very different outlook in America where you run a business for profit. Mm -hmm. So you have a bunch of employees, you pay them as little as you can. And so that you can have, and then you take all the costs of your ingredients, which are coming from wherever you can get them because you're selling a concept. You're paying as little as you can. You're putting them all together into dishes that are as efficient as possible. And then you're 
optimizing everything you can so that at the end you yield a profit number. That's really the purpose of most American restaurants, the vast majority of them. It's not to have a beautiful life and to serve people and to be part of this community. The ironic part is once you make all that profit, then you go to Italy and you eat at this place that's really good. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, what, yay! If we if we do this long enough, we can maybe extract enough blood from our envi- our economy that we can go to Italy and eat like real people. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so it, it it is absolutely crazy. It drives me out of my mind, and and you know it's affected my outlook on business for. And I've been involved in European work off and on my whole life, and and elsewhere, Japan and. It's affected the way I want to run my company. That's mm-hmm. for sure, because I feel like that's just something's a little bit amiss. If it's a, if that's the like, I'm, it's to it's the business doesn't exist to make beautiful food so that you can serve it to people and have a have a good life. Like that to me would be the fundamental cool ass way to run a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Make really good food by by supporting all the local makers all around me. Make this great food, serve it to people, and live a good life. Kind of sounds cool to me, but that's not what we do. We we say that we 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 take little pieces of that, and we tune it, and we especially tune it in this narratives. We say like, well, I'm really am a farm to table company, but still here to make a profit. Meaning, as soon as you say that, your profit's your priority, or or a very important one. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's just a tricky thing about our way of life. And I'm not picking on restaurants. It's all the way we do all of our business. It's business in 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 is about making profit. And I understand we have a very effective economy. I'm not poo-pooing capitalism. It's done some incredible things. Um, at the same time, it does have weaknesses, mm-hmm. and it shows up where the pedal hits, where the rubber hits the road. It's when you go to a restaurant like Don Remo, and you're like, "Why am I eating in a more beautiful place, higher quality food, more charming and strange and quirky service? The most uh, you can taste and feel and interconnect with the countryside. You can get your honey and your olive oil and your meats and your and your 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 the grains. Everything is right there, and you get that it's it it has a, a intrinsic value to us that no amount of money no matter how much money you make you don't get to feel that in your day-to-day life yeah i think it benefits whatever the company is to have a leader who has those ideals and, and wants to live their life that way yeah it's just hard to sustain right i mean it's like that whole like th- th- triple bottom line right people planet profit, um, which is a slick way of kind of let's let's reevaluate how we weight each of these things a little bit. And it opens up the opportunity at least to say things like let's let's balance our profit against the environmental impact and the human impact of my company. It's a thing you can do. Um, but you know it's it's still just kind of a platitude. I mean, really what you have to do is truly believe that the purpose of your business is to serve stakeholders in a more profound way. And that means that your vendors are just as important to you as you are. Your employees are just as important to you as you as you are. Frankly, your landlord is just as important to you as you are. You have to treat, and then of course, of course, your customers are just as important to you as you are. And you have to like believe that mm-hmm. they're the same. We're all the same. They, I care about if I want to go to sleep and if I want to live a rich life, I want those things to be all together taken care of. I want to take care of everybody around me and myself. 
And by the way, if I do that, I believe that I will be taken care of by the, better as well. And if you believe that, which I do, then you you have at least that it's a counterweight to the capitalist ideal of maximizing profit, maximizing shareholder return, as they say. Mm-hmm. So I think that we can do that in little ways. It's just it's hard, you know. It's it's a, it's we don't have an entire economic system built around that. There's too many different types of people. There are some people that are driven. I mean, I think about like, you ever seen Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. (laughs) Think about those guys. Those guys don't give a shit about anybody. They're trying to make as much money as possible. That that's a far different personality type than, than you and what you're doing. Yeah. They're going to make way more money than me. And and, and by the way, that's the part hardest part nowadays, of course, is that, People like us, we we don't have um, we don't have a voice in our in our in our government. Really, we don't have a, we don't have a fair shake. However, we can do it anyway. That's the thing is, it's very hard to stop. And I, I, I the the thing when people think it's like all gloom and doom, like oh well, big corporations are running the world, and you know this that and the other. It's like well yeah yeah, but you know you can still innovate and disrupt. Despite that, mm-hmm. and frankly, sometimes that's the best opportunity. Like when 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 someone has a stranglehold on things, you can still innovate and disrupt. And so I feel like that's one of the things we can do, even if it's at a tiny level. You have a company like mine, and you have thousands of other companies like mine all around the country, and we don't, we exist for a reason uh, because we're providing something vital. We um, we have opportunities of our own, and and once in a while, the big companies get you know they catch on. That's where things like you know, all the stuff you read about nowadays in the paper with corporate social, what is the term? Corporate social responsibility, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. That's just them trying to be as effective as small companies like ours. Yeah. With their messaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever considered opening a restaurant? My big dream, this is just terrible. Um, Uh, Aren't you living your dream? No, it is. No, no, no. (laughs) I shouldn't say that. My big dream to get to, to make my life more difficult has always been to open a little bar. I just, I love little bars and um, I have this, I, I, and I'm a kind of a lover and connoisseur of of little bars. I just think that they're wonderful places. You know, kind of like, like I was saying about like the meal is where we all gather together and that's really around family and close relationships. What I love about bars is they're where we gather together as a community, as people. We go out and meet people and rub elbows. And some old guy across this, the bar yells, hey, I'm looking for kids to work at the summer camp at the store. I'm working <laughs> up by the lake. And you're like, these things happen in the bars that are yeah. fantastic. And so I've always wanted to have this I have this very nice little idea for a small bar. Um, but I just don't know if I have – I don't know if I have it in me to ever – run a company like that? I think it's a lot of work. I think it's pretty tough. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard it's, <laughs> it's a lot of work. Uh, w- would you serve food? Yeah. I guess you'd have to, if it was in Oregon. I mean, if I were to do a restaurant, it would be way more. I've mentioned to you that I, I'm, I love to go deep on things. So on a dish, if I were to have a restaurant, it would be literally around my current food obsession. So for example, I, I, I'll go ahead and probably say this and people can freak out. I think I probably make the best biscuits and gravy in the world. I make really good biscuits and gravy. I believe you. Been making it my whole life, and I've drilled down on that. And I've got, and it's a, it's not it's it's not frugal. Like it costs a lot, a lot of butter, a lot of sausage, um, and 
I would love to serve, share my biscuits and gravy with people. It just would make me really happy to make big pots of biscuits and gravy every Sunday. And I don't get money, whatever, just sell it, give it away. Um, but same thing I mentioned, like with Chipino, or I did, I've been doing like a beautiful uh, 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 mushroom farfalle. And I've like, just like make dishes that I fall in love with and I get, to, and I love to make them. And I'd like to have a restaurant where I just serve my favorite foods like of the month. The, there's some places in Portland that do that, right? Yeah, where they so. just have like six tables and you have to get a reservation like a year in advance, right? Aren't there places like that where... But imagine if you show up and you're like, tonight you're having biscuits and gravy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the best in the world. It's it's going to be yummy, but it wasn't what you thought. You know, you're like, but but six months ago, you were doing this freaking amazing sushi with uni from Santa Barbara. And that's what I wanted to come to. I'm like, yeah. oh, that was my, that was my obsession back then. But yeah. now I'm really into biscuits and gravy. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, I have eclectic food taste. So it'd be, I'd be, a, I'd be a, I think a lot of people would have a problem with me as a chef. Yeah. That's a cool idea. <laughs> I mean, it's just a, that I would enjoy doing. Yeah. I would enjoy, I love feeding people. It's definitely my love language. So I would, I would, if I could feed Portland with my food, I would just be, it would make me really, really happy. Yeah. I just don't know how that, that's, that's not a business model, <laughs> at least not one that I, my arms wrapped around. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, well, I think we're getting pretty close to being done, but, but, but I wanted to ask you about, cause I didn't even know this was a thing. This is embarrassing because you wrote a book on it. I didn't know this was a thing that you could buy a salt block. Oh yeah. I've never heard of that. Oh Yeah. So explain for the people who don't know, like me, what what exactly, how do you cook on a salt block? Yeah, you take a slab of 600 million year old salt from Pakistan, and it's what you call Himalayan pink salt. Before you grind it down into a fine salt, you get it's just these big boulders, and you can cut those boulders up into slabs or bricks. And you could do basic everyday things on there, like, um, I don't know, make like a, a little salad, like watermelon feta mint salad on a salt block. It's one of the recipes in that book, salt block cooking. Freaking delicious and simple. Um, you could um, just do charcuterie plates and things like that, do some pears and mozzarella and whatever. Anything that's any, got any moisture is going to pick up some salt on that salt block. But can you cook, like, can yeah. you put it on the barbecue and, and grill a burger on it? Like, know, I was getting there. I was going to, okay, building up to that. <laughs> It's, okay. a, it's a it's a thing, um, but you can. I was gonna say you could do kooky things like you could freeze it and use it as an anti griddle. And I've like made ice cream on top of the salt block. It's really cool. But yeah, you can take the salt block, put it on a stove top or on a grill, and heat it up till it's wicked hot. It has huge uh, thermal mass, so it it absorbs and holds an enormous amount of energy in it. And then you can sear shrimp, flank steak, scallops bacon and eggs, um, makes incredible pizza. Wow. You just use it as a griddle. It's like a grill, a grill plate. You put it in the oven to heat it up? You can do oven or stove or, or, or grill. Okay. I mean, I just throw mine on the grill, heat it up. And how often do you cook with a salt block? Um, in the last several months, very rarely, but off and on throughout my life, a lot. Yeah. Like when I entertain, it's a blast. It's, people love it. It it has it, it puts this gorgeous kind of salty. The salt on the salt block pulls out some moisture, and then um, that gives you that beautiful brown crust. Um, it also develops flavor by putting salt into the food, and it, it basically denatures proteins into flavor available amino acids that are super flavorful, and you get this like crazy salty rich, crunchy, chewy, delicious 
you know, piece of chicken or, or I do, I do, uh, sauteed vegetables on there. I've done risotto on there. I've done everything on these things. And how do you clean it when it's done? Uh, get it, cool down, get it wet, hit it with a scrubby, scrub it, wipe, scrub, wipe, almost like, like a version of a cast iron skillet. You almost like polish it after each use okay. and they last a long time. But it will eventually deteriorate. Yeah. And eventually yeah. it'll, it'll, it'll use up a little bit each time. They last a lot though. I mean, dozens and dozens of uses. That is really cool. Yeah. I did not know. Chicken that. under a brick. You can heat it up super wicked hot. Put your chicken down on the grill. Put your white hot brick on top of the chicken. And it cooks it like you get a grilled chicken, like a chicken under a brick. You probably, it's like a, it's an old fashioned dish. And you get that and it makes a fully cooked chicken in about 15 minutes because <laughs> it's just so much energy is going into that yeah. thing. Yeah. That's cool. That's awesome. That book was funny because I was like, it's one more thing. It's like no one's no one's ever written about how to cook on one of these things. Um, no one's ever talked about cooking or thought about it. Really, I mean, we kind of popularized it in the states, I think. Um, but that book, I mean, it was pretty funny argument. You know, talking to my publisher, and I was like, I want to write a book on how to cook on a salt block, and he's like, a what on a what? <laughs> and and luckily, uh, I I found it. I found a different publisher for that book, and she's like, all right, well you seem to be kind of passionate about it. Maybe we'll give it a shot. And that book sold like 400,000 copies. Wow. Maybe even more now. It's crazy. I'm going to get one too. Yeah. Cause I want to check out these recipes. It just blew up. And, uh, and yeah, it's just a funny idea. Cause it's, you know, it's a, it's a playful, fun, delicious way to cook. Yeah. I mean, you probably kind of popularized it, right? I think so. I mean, no one was doing it. And, uh, I, people ask, did I invent it? And I definitely did not invent it. First off, they've been cooking similarly in in countries that have rock salt. They'll heat up the piece of rock salt on the, in a fire and throw meat on top of it and cook it that way. So that's been happening since forever. And uh, uh, But I think that we were the first people really to kind of, definitely the first people to actually look at it as a system and a way to cook. So. And are there lots of restaurants now that utilize this? There are some steakhouses that do it. They do like the Wagyu steak on salt blocks and sushi restaurants for sure that will do like a sashimi on a salt block. Um, it's not super popular, but it's enough. I and mean, we do we do wholesale business with restaurants for sure. Nice. And it's a beautiful presentation. I mean, you just bring out something gorgeous on a, you can bring the block to the table, hot or cold. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I, I, I'm a fan. I mean, I think it's kooky. You don't have to do it. Yeah. If you're looking for a life that's as simple and rudimentary as it can be culinarily, then you don't need a salt block. But if you like to play around and you yeah, like Yeah, it's to, cool to experiment. Yeah. How much is a block? Yeah, like probably like 15 bucks to 50 bucks, depending on how big of a block. That's not that bad at all. No. And then we have like these little shot glasses and you can like make drinks in your shot and you can freeze the salt, the, shot, the salt shot glass and throw a margarita in there or a mint julep or something like that. I was going to say, do you drink margaritas? I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have no problem with margaritas. <laughs> cool. Well, that was awesome. I margaritas appreciate it. Margaritas are a salt delivery vehicle too. They've got a little salt in the room. Yeah. No, this was great talking. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me here.